Can I begin? Make room for the queen of Hindustan. Hey, it's Raju Kumari. I did it, I did it, I did, I did it all by myself. And you're checking out Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Hi, welcome. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian radio station. Welcome to our show, Life Force, where we explore the magical, mystical forces that awaken our lives. Today, we're going to talk about ritual and mourning surrounding the unborn, babies who are lost to miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion. And we'll also talk about the ways in which we Mothers, fathers, siblings, and grandparents can heal from those d- deep and oftentimes silent losses. I'm your host, Shilpa Agarwal, and I'm honored to welcome Patricia Danaher to speak with us today. Patricia is an Irish-born writer, producer, and scholar based in Los Angeles. She is a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and a juror on the Golden Globes. A longtime political correspondent for ITV, she was awarded a Neiman Fellowship to Harvard University, where she, was, where she also taught journalism. She is the director of Harvardwood Publishing and has edited and published two anthologies of short stories and poems, the latest of which is a modern retelling of classical fairy tales called Once Upon a Fairy Tale. She has written and directed a play for radio, The Long Way Round, and has also ghostwritten memoirs for artists. She was awarded the Joseph Campbell Scholarship at Pacifica Graduate Institute, where she completed a master's in mythological studies. Patricia developed rituals to mourn the unborn based on her own current, her own personal experiences of loss, her studies in ritual, and several years spent in Japan studying Zen. Currently, Patricia is a PhD candidate in archetypal and eco-psychology at Veritas Graduate Institute. She's writing her doctoral dissertation on ritual and mourning, and she is also writing a self-help book titled Unborn. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Shilpa. It's great to be here. So I'm going to dive into the deep end first and then back up and kind of get to the genesis of your work. Um, so I was doing a little research on, on miscarriage and stillbirth and abortion, and current miscarriage rates are about 10 to 20% of um, pregnancy, though there's evidence that it's higher because women are not sometimes aware that they're pregnant. Um, The World Health Organization recorded 2.6 million stillbirths globally in 2015, Um, the majority, of course, in developing countries. And um, World Population Review cites that for every 1,000 American women between the ages of 15 and 44, 19.6 have an abortion with the highest rate being in Russia of 37.4. That's a lot of unborn. What is the um, consequences to our collective psyche of this kind of loss? Well, it's hard to quantify uh, because, because they occur in so many different forms. And one I think that, that should be included there is IVF um, and IVF that fails to succeed. Mm. You know, which Thank is you for a- bringing that up. Yes, it's, it's, it's a staggeringly high figure in addition, which is probably has to do with, you know, climate change and, you know, so many things in our diet and everything else. So it, it sort of depends really, you know, I mean, abortions, um, you know, arise out of, out of necessity in most cases. Um, many, in many cases, people are, keep them secret because of the, the taboo and the shame, but there's evidence going back, you know, going back to, 
going back thousands of years that uh, abortion has been has been used in cases of poverty and um, malnutrition you know in India in Japan where you know the what we're going to talk about with the rituals um, related to this uh, originated but it's it's a kind of part of life um, in Greek mythology Artemis is uh, is is a goddess who protects uh, women in childbirth but who, who also as the as the sort of tomboy herself who never becomes a woman is also also considered a kind of a protector for women who have abortions, that nature sometimes interrupts or intervenes because of various other things that will not support or will not be able to nurture a baby. So there's that particular case. Um, miscarriages can happen for all kinds of reasons that are known and unknown. Um, the failed IVF that I just referred to there is also a sort of a shot in the dark, a sort of a lottery. So there's a huge amount of this, this longing to perpetuate ourselves and to create families and communities and societies. So it's, it's hard to sort of say one general thing about how it affects the psyche. But I think... Um, I grew up in a Catholic country in Ireland, as you as you no doubt can hear, where you know issues of the female body and abortion, um, contraception, the ability to, to manage one's fertility have, have been very strongly controlled and policed by the church for you know for eons. So when something happens, like obviously like an abortion or a miscarriage, the church does not allow for burial. So a, ba a baby that has not been baptized is considered mere medical waste. So there's a huge amount of shame that can actually be an additional uh, part of the suffering that goes with the grief of the loss of a baby in the first place. The industry of IVF is, I, I don't know what the exact figure is that is spent every year, but I think many of us know people who've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars wanting to have a child and being unable to do so and the, the science not being able to, to fulfill all of this. And what I find is that people have no place to really take this grief outside of grief groups where people have had similar experiences. In the broader society, it's very, very difficult to talk about this particular kind of grief. And there's no place to go. There's no memorial ground. There's no real possibility to have anniversaries or to in some way kind of externalize this invisible pain, which is really, really huge. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but whether this, you know, addictive behaviors or how this affects how people live in their lives and in their worlds, you know, with this, with this huge loss within themselves, um, you know, is, is unquantifiable in a way, but undoubtedly it's there. And since I've begun doing this work, I've been finding an immense, uh, people have been speaking to me about the relief that they're finding in, you know, being able to externalize this pain and being able to ritualize it and being able to, you know, show, have something to sort of show and something that, that they can tend to, as opposed to, uh, you know, holding this pain within themselves and not being able to have it acknowledged in the broader society. And um, we will definitely um, talk about these healing rituals a little bit later in the show. But I want to go back to your point about um, you grew up in Ireland. You were influenced by kind of early tradition, early Christian tradition, um, Celtic beliefs, um, and then you know, kind of this religious um, inability to kind of um, recognize these unborn. Um, I was reading something, an article. Um, um, ab about miscarriage in Ireland, and it talked about how sometimes people would sneak uh, these babies into the coffins of recently dead relatives, and there were other things, or um, but there were also practices where they would try to 
put them under trees for the fairies to take. Can you talk a little bit about the the kind of mythology you grew up with and the what was there or what wasn't there? Yes, absolutely. Well, Irish Irish Christianity and Catholicism um, is very much a merger with a lot of pagan traditions, which are very very close to nature. So the the pagan would have much more of an understanding that is not unlike, you know, some Asian traditions about, you know, seeing seeing death as part of a, a part of the cycles of nature in a sense. So there are different archetypes like St. Bridget and St. Christopher and St. Francis, you know, who would be, you know, obviously partly of the, of the, of the Christ, Christian tradition, but St. Bridget, who's, part, who's also recognized as an archetype in, um, in, in paganism and, you know, in, in Celtic traditions. So the connection with, with nature and symbolism in nature as, you know, in, in death and in life and in marking stages of life, say, for example, in, in springtime, the first day of February is the day of St. Bridget. Uh, St. Bridget has, has a lot of different associations that would be recognized in a lot of different cultures. She's not particularly associated as a protector of women in childbirth, but nevertheless, she is considered sort of a protector in nature with, with death uh, as part of the cycle of nature. So when the first of spring is the first day of the first of February is the first day of spring in Ireland, and it's widely celebrated for Saint Bridget, who represents fecundity, the return of the you know the, the, the return of growth and the beginning of the the new cycle of renewal. So Irish Christianity, although it is in many ways a lot more conservative than, say, Polish or French or Spanish Christianity and Catholicism, nevertheless has still imbued some of these pagan traditions there also. So there are stone stone circles, there are, there are images, the Sheila Nagigs, there are a lot of powerful female images that are, were not were not wiped out by the Catholic Church, even if they weren't necessarily encouraged. So I came from a, a broad combination of these, really, and grew up in the countryside and was very much, um, we weren't farming people, but we had a garden and my father used to cut peat. So the cycles of nature and the return was something I was very, very close to. And then I was quite religious as a child and I loved the rituals of the church. I loved the I loved Easter, I loved the smells and the bells, I loved the songs, I loved the community and all of the things that come together and the positive elements of the, of, of the Christian traditions were very, very comforting to me. So I, I came, I, this is sort of my, my formation was there, and then I became very interested in meditation um, as a teenager, and I, I, I got involved in transcendental meditation when I was about 14 or 15. And I had a kind of a cosmopolitanism in my spirituality in a way that I, I could see the both and, you know, the, the benefits and the, and the, and the, and the learning that could, be, that could be enjoyed, you know, by, by engaging with other traditions without feeling a, a dilution or, you know, heresy or any of the mm-hmm. other people around me probably felt. Um, so this is this was sort of my founding, and then in my early twenties, um, I, I went to Asia for a year and ended up staying for three years. And it was um, an interest in, in Zen meditation that brought me to Japan, which, um, with the foundation that I had when I encountered Zen, it just seemed like a, an absolutely wonderful other elevation to what I already had. So then, tell me, um, you were doing you were in this high world of the Hollywood foreign press and Golden Globes and Harvard. And you made this shift into this other, other, you've made this shift now in your life, kind of your your trajectory um, into healing and working with the unborn. Did this happen gradually or was it something that, um, was it a stark kind of 
turning turning around in your path? Well, in fact, it, um, it, it's, it's an evolution that I didn't feel like I had planned. But as I look back, it looks like it was, it was extremely well calibrated from the time I decided to go to Asia for a year to, you know, a few years ago, deciding to do a master's in mythological studies. And in fact, I'm still involved with the Golden Globes and I'm still running the Harvard Wood imprint. So I'm completing um, this master's so, or this, this doctorate now as it is at this point. But it's kind of extraordinary. You know, I, as I said, I hadn't planned all of this but when I look back it really looks like I'm now doing I'm following my fate in so many different ways so I I love that I feel like that's that's the only thing we can see when we look back upon our lives right that the 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 pieces that we follow right yes that there was a thread there all along that I wasn't always fully aware of so my experience um in Japan if I if I if you don't mind if I try to you know to thread it for you a little bit while I was in Japan, I was very, very interested in in the rituals of of, of Zen and the aesthetic, and uh, I came across uh, the, the these Jizu statues, and I came across the the practice of mourning the unborn while I was there. A short time afterwards, I had a termination myself, and it was something that, you know, it was it was a necessary thing for me at the time, but it. it, it Produced an incredible amount of um, of grief and haunting and uh, and things that I had never fully really anticipated and I I reached for these uh, these ceremonies of Jizu then and found an incredible healing and then I forgot about it and sort of put it aside I came back to Ireland and I worked as a political journalist for many years and I, I wrote can I just interrupt real quick yes um, I just want to say Jizu J I Z O just so um, people can uh, look that up. And I wanted to ask you, um, when you first went and saw a Jizo memorial or a garden in Japan, what did you feel? What did you see? Can you describe that for our audience? Yes. Well, I, I didn't know what it was. So I was out walking one day near uh, where I lived in Osaka, and I came across this ground, this memorial ground. And there were all of these little, little stone statues that looked like um, like like little cartoon figures, joyful little creatures with little red bibs and different kinds of warm clothing on them. And at first I thought it was like a creepy doll's uh, graveyard. And when it was properly explained to me, I couldn't believe the, the compassion and the beauty of this kind of a m memorial ground. And I began to seek them out. I, I found that they were everywhere. And it's a huge part of, um, of Japanese culture, although it's also part, it came from China in the seventh century, and it's also an Indian and Tibetan culture, but the specific, um, the, the archetype or the bodhisattva of Jizu, the Japanese specifically uh, created Jizu as a protect, Jizu Mizuki uh, as a protector of the unborn. There are many different kinds of Jizu that are, are sign like saints or archetypes that people, um, you know, turn to for different, um, different struggles in life. But the Japanese created this very, very specific thing to mourn the unborn. The phrase "mourn the unborn" is a phrase of my own, but um, essentially, uh, it, it, it is for you know babies. Abortion was really one of the earliest impetuses, it seems, in Japan, arising from famine and you know various poverty and various kinds of difficulty. It was a, a very, very common way of family planning, for want of a better term. Right. And it came out of what post World War II. 
Well, it's even earlier, actually, because, you know, Japan has had, it was very isolated for a very long time, but uh, it did have its famines and, you know, and scarcity at different times. So the tradition of these, uh, of, of Jizu goes back to the 7th century when it arrived from China, but um, it, 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 is, it has always been there. But I think post-World War II, it became more and more popular or more and more needed, again, out of poverty and, and scarcity, in a sense, you know. So, um, so that was, um, that was my encounter in, with it for the first time. And then I, I sort of put it aside and it didn't occur to me again until a few years ago when I was studying um, myth and ritual at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. And then it came back to me really, really strongly as, as though it had been waiting all along until I was ready to begin to try to make something of this and to try to create something to introduce to the wider world outside of Asia. And um, that's really beautiful. And so Jizu, Jizu is known um, by different names. He's a bodhisattva. And can you tell our um, audience what a bodhisattva is? Yes, a bodhisattva is a, a, is a Buddha in training, if you like, um, who has lived through many, many lives, but who has decided not to enter into nirvana until all beings are free. And it's a very loving and compassionate figure. And, you know, there you see many bodhisattvas. I think uh, Greta Thunberg is a kind of a bodhisattva. I think Emma Gonzalez. There, you know, we see many examples of people, you know, who could take an easier route in life, who could, you know, avoid being hated or who could, you know, you know, who could take an easier way, but who choose not to. Um, and we see different kinds of examples. So this is what a bodhisattva is. And there are some beautiful stories. I have some, I have some of the, I'm sure you've seen some of these. Yes, uh, so beautiful. Just the Patricia is holding up um, yes. uh, a statue right now of Jizo with a little baby in his arms. And he's just so peaceful and beautiful. His head is bald, he's made out of stone. And in his arms is wrapped this little tiny baby so beautiful and just this very rounded figure and the mythology some of the stories they, they, there's something very childlike as well as this being about you know the death of children or the death of potential but there's something kind of childlike about it too so the story here is you see the the, the capaciousness of the monk's robe so the part of the story here is that the baby when the baby uh, dies before birth that Jizu intercedes and takes the baby and hides it in his robe so it can be sneaked into nirvana and spared reincarnation, spared the whole cycle of, of the wheel of life. So it's a very, very... Into a sleeve, right? Into the sleeve, exactly. Yes. So yeah. we can see it now, but this is the, this is the myth and, and what a comforting thing this is. And you see the benevolence, the little, the little smile, you know, on both of the faces. I'll show you another one here. I know our, our listeners can't hear them, but... Chinese one, and this is very like um, Saint Francis. You know, you see, all, you see all the little creatures. There are like little animals and and little baby, and obviously little babies there as well. But you know, as a as a as a as a guardian of the of the of the of the vulnerable, you know, yes, it's, the vulnerable. Yes, yes. and Jizo has different names in China, in Tibet, in Korea, in India, in Sanskrit. The Jizo is known by Kishti um, Garba uh, Bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this uh, this bodhisattva is is there um, and shares the it's is is a common to many many cultural traditions. Yeah, it it seems that the Japanese. I've just got one more here that a friend of mine made with the 
little baby in, in front. Oh, this one's very beautiful. It's made very, of ceramic, and Jizo um, uh, is holding the child out in outstretched arms, um, uh, like almost like uh, the two palms are held out together in front of him. Just very yeah. beautiful. Very, very lovely. Yes. Thank you, Patricia. We're going to be back to Life Force after this message from our station. Hi, I'm Chef Sanjeev Kapoor. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Life Force. I'm your host, Shilpa Agarwal, and I'm here with Patricia Danaher. And we're talking about ritual and mourning surrounding the unborn. Babies who are lost to miscarriage, stillbirth, abortion, and IVF. Um, unsuccessful IVF. Um, so Patricia, you mentioned earlier in your own journey um, that you've had losses of your own with the unborn. Can you um, kind of expand on that and tell us a little bit about your losses and how they've kind of informed your journey? Yes, it's, it's, it's been a, um, I've had a mixture of experiences that I hadn't quite anticipated. So I had a termination in my early 20s um, and then in my in my later years, I was sort of um, I was traveling a lot, and um, I I didn't become sort of that I didn't really want motherhood. I sort of uh, avoided it for uh, for quite a long time. And then in the last sort of decade or so, I had um, I had unsuccessful IVF. I had a, I had a miscarriage. And um, I just, you know, realized there was a kind of an accumulation of, of grief in myself that I, I didn't really fully understand. And uh, I, had a, I had a very unusual and very painful experience after a termination of being haunted of an image of a, of a boy um, that would appear to me um, when, I would be, when I would be alone. It happened for quite a long time until I, until I actually did a ritual and, and honored what was happening. But it was, it was really a very, very visceral experience that happened to me several times. And it was almost, it was almost always identical. I would be alone and um, I would be sort of staring into space or I'd be reading or something. And then an image of a dark tree would arise. And from behind the tree, a small boy would walk around wearing short pants and a cream colored sweater and would just look at me very sternly almost, but very severely, not severely, but very intently. And I, I was very distressed by it. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't uh, doubt my own decision in the first place, but I did, I, I did feel forced to really properly acknowledge that there was something that was not at rest and that I, I, you know, whatever had occurred medically, there was something spiritually and psychically that had not been honored and had not been allowed to be rested, to be put to rest or to be, you know, respectfully seen. So I did a ritual um, myself by, you know, writing a letter and giving him, giving him a name and speaking to him. And, uh, and then I buried the letter and I, I buried it in the ground and made that a sort of a ritual. And, and then it didn't happen anymore after that. Um, so when I had the other experiences, you know, there was a similar kind of um, a residue or uh, that sounds that sounds very cold, but it, it, I didn't have the image like I did in this case. But there was still something that was had, had that was still in my mind and in my psyche that I, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so it was in my studies then of, of ritual that everything sort of came back to me that, of course, you already know this. You already have these experiences. You know these archetypes and these saints and, uh, you know, lean into this. So in my understanding of the 
the richness of ritual and ceremony and the ease that it gives to humans, no matter what it is, you know, whether it's going to a concert or a football match or watching royalty or politics or courtroom scenarios, there is something about the container of ritual, which is incredibly healing and calming for us as, as humans. Animals and insects and birds also have rituals of their own, but uh, for humans, the metaphor of ritual has a hugely healing and calming effect that nothing else can can can, can quite reach. You know, it's a it's it's the metaphor that touches the invisible part of ourselves. You know, our psyche, our spirit, our soul, or whatever else it might be. Um, so I I felt that uh, I, this sounds pompous, but I felt a sort of a, a calling that I, I had these experiences. I had had this accidental encounter while I was you know out for a walk one day, and then I became the woman I did. And uh, it was doing this study and looking for some way of, you know, bringing this forward and also to honor my own experiences and with the empathy that I hope I have to actually reach out to other people that, that have these experiences. So I've been, I've, tried, I've, I've formalized it and um, I've set up a foundation. I've been, I've been working with a lot of different people and uh, the healing for myself and for them, you know, has been, has been absolutely huge. And one of the things that um, has touched me incredibly is male grief, that the, the mother and the female is, is very visible, obviously, you know, in, in, in terms of pregnancy and, and motherhood, etc. But I have found grandparents and uncles and little brothers, you know, in floods of tears at this unacknowledged grief that they've carried for years, that if it's been bad for the, for the, for the females in their lives going through, you know, these losses, that for them, there's even less of a container for this. And this has touched me incredibly to see the healing effect of this. Right, because there's not really a space for that to be articulated, because oftentimes there's not even a space for the, for the mother's grief to be articulated. And even less so for any male. Like a, a little boy, there was a six or seven-year-old boy that was part of a ritual I did for a family, and he had written a letter, and he was so sad. At the, he, his mother had had a miscarriage about two years earlier, and he was still really sad, and he was saying, I never got to meet my little sister, and I was so excited, and I you know, really wanted her to to play with her and for her to be part of my life. I had an experience um, with a man about six months ago who was working with me or I, who I went to see to work with about making some of these Jesus statues. And uh, he didn't know what this was about. And I handed him one of the statues and I began to say, you know, where I had, you know, where I had seen this idea. And he was a man in his sixties and he just burst out crying as I, as I started to speak about this. And then he told me that, you know, he and his wife had always wanted to have children. He said, I always envisaged we'd have a big, noisy household full of children. And instead, we had six miscarriages. So there was decades of grief that came out. And I was so touched that he then went on to, to make some of these statues for me. And he's spoken to me about the healing that he's gotten from this. And I, I did a ceremony for them and created a shrine in their back garden. So it's kind of extraordinary. And I, I find, you know... I think there's nobody, we, we all know somebody, we all know families, if not ourselves, you know, that have gone through this kind of grief. There's nobody, it's like the, you know, the Buddha and the, and the, the power of the mustard seeds, you know, there is no house That's that right. touched by, by death and in particular, you know, the loss of a wanted baby. And when I think about this, you know, more broadly, like what, what is a baby but potential? You know, that this is, um, 
something that we all want or that many people want, you know, potential in all different kinds of ways. So the, the flesh and bloodness of a, of a baby represents, you know, potential that never gets to flower, that never, that never gets to come to be. So how do you, how do you articulate that? You know, how, how can you, how can you talk about what might have been, you know, to people who, you know, how do you bring it into the conversation without upsetting or annoying people or, you know, finding, you know, understanding and, and compassion? Um, absolutely. And I want to just back up and ask you about, for example, um, each of these losses, um, whether through miscarriage or um, I, not having IVF come through to fruition or stillbirth or abortion, um, involve different emotions um, and different levels of you know, suppression or silence or secrecy or shame. Or Can you talk about... Um, how like what you've seen about these emotions in these different like in these different scenarios concerning the mother let's just we've already talked about the other family members but specifically around the mother depending on the type of loss yes well i suppose in general you know um termination and abortion is very triggering and i i never want to upset people um you know and i i try to be very careful when i'm talking about this that somebody who desperately wants a baby doesn't feel that you know they're putting in you know that they're put into the same company as somebody who chose abortion who for whatever reason judging anybody i really see all of the pain as very equal but i do try to be very very sensitive but say in general, somebody who is unable to get pregnant but really wants to, not only do they have that grief of, you know, they, that conception and that successful uh, conception not occurring, but there's also their, how society has always seen women as the mother, your function or your, not your function, but, you know, the, the perception of femininity and the mother is to produce and is to nurture and is to create. So there's shame, there's a sense of... Um, there's a sense of probably in inward directed judgment as being a defective feminine in some way that not creating a not being able to create a family is being seen as some kind of a failure so that i think there is kind of layered emotions i i won't talk about the terminations too much because I think they're often very difficult. They're always difficult decisions. I don't think anybody's in favor of abortion. You know, when it arises, it's a very painful and difficult choice for people. I, I think, you know, almost, almost in general, I would say that. Um, with the IVF, it's, I think it's really, I think it's similar in all, in, in many of these ways. I think the idea of, of a stillbirth and, and knowing that you're carrying a baby that has died, I think that, that breaks my heart. That, that one, particularly having to, knowing people that have had to go through birth, knowing that the baby that they wanted was already dead. That's one that, you know, that I, I find particularly poignant. But um, my attitude to the grief is is completely, you know, democratic and across the board. I really don't judge it at all. And in my own experience with the abortion that I had, I had no idea, you know, I had no idea of the way nature would play itself out in me. The, the mourning that arose, you know, I was young and, you know, maybe more frivolous than, than I certainly am now. But, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was really an undeniable force that, that, that made me reckon with, you know, what had, what had occurred that I would never have conceived of previously. I would have thought about right to choose and, you know, you know the language that is true in, in thinking about these things. But, you know, the, the element of nature that was interfered with, you know, had to be, it had to be righted. 
And uh, I would not have known that and I would probably may not have had the compassion and understanding and insight that I hope I do have now had I not gone through a number of these myself, including that one. But I, I, because of it being such a triggering subject, I try not to, you know, I try not to, I try not to upset people because I don't want, you know, I, I certainly don't take it lightly. I don't Absolutely. take it Absolutely. I understand that. I understand what you're saying about also as a young person that moving from this realm of, you know, a woman's right to um, choose to um, it being something that's deeply in your body. And there's other elements that's, a, you know, it's a deeply physical, emotional, spiritual experience. Yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about the rituals that you do? And um, I'd be very interested if you could share maybe um, an example of one or two clients and what you've done for them, and then what you've seen three months, six months, a year after, if you could share maybe one or two clients. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'm, I'm really, um, so essentially what I try to, what I do for people is I go to their homes and I create something living. We have a ritual, um, we, I plant something. I, I invite people to, 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 you know, to bring a plant or I bring herbs and shrubs um, and flowers. I bring the I bring the Jesus statues. I encourage people involved to write letters, to bring poetry, to bring music, to bring food, to bring offerings, and we build a shrine together of what things are meaningful um, for those involved. And people sing. People, you know, decorate the tree. They put little clothing on the on the on the Jesus statues like they do in Japan and it becomes a very personal and a very um, a living thing that can be tended to that can be visited and I try to talk about you know the fact that we all come from elements in nature our teeth are calcium our hair is nitrogen that we we come from nature we're eternally in 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 cycles and some of it is visible and some of it is invisible and I tr without you know without being trite about the real pain that they're feeling about this physical loss but I do try to get people to try to engage in thinking about this as the cycles of, of, of nature and composting their grief and using their grief in in the making of these shrines as a way of tending to as a way of tending to that grief and making it perhaps into something richer that they can take you know they can um, they can visit, they can water it, they can sing to this, uh, this shrine, they can take people out, there can be birthdays, there can be, you know, there can be a kind of um, an externalization of this, of this longed for potential that, that has not actually come into being. And I find the letters that I get and the, the response from people as time goes on, the pain is still there. But the fact that it's been acknowledged and held in the container of the ceremony has an absolutely enormous healing effect. The, 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 the recognition and the encapsulation of their pain and their longed for pain in, in the ceremony itself and then in the shrine and in their garden, in this growing living thing that, they, that, that is theirs to, you know, to bear witness to and, and to tend to, um, that people find incredible relief in, 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 in the externalization. And so I was really moved by when you talked about uh, this gentleman uh, in his 60s and, and going through a ceremony with him. Um, because I'm, I think that there's a lot of women who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s, the grandmothers of our generation who um, 
may have not had access to, especially in the West, to these ceremonies, um, who have just buried their pain for 30, 40 years, what can they do now? I mean, is it, I mean, it's so deeply buried and so densely buried. Is, is it possible to access it, it now? Is it possible to release it now? I think so. I think so. I have worked with some couples in their 60s who, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, still have this grief and still have this suffering. And uh, one person said to me that they didn't, they were very reluctant to do the ritual. Her husband wanted to do it. But she said to me, I'm afraid if I do this ritual that I'll have, and I will lose the memory of my grief. And that's all I have right now. And it took some time. You know, we had a number of conversations she finally decided she wanted to do that but that touched me incredibly there was a you know there was a this this anxiety that all i have is the memory of my pain or the memory of this wanted baby and what happened and if i don't do this or if i do this perhaps the memory will also go but in fact it wasn't that at all there's a thriving shrine now with all kinds of all kinds of beautiful shrubs and birds and butterflies and you know, there's uh, the, 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 there's evidence of, of of life thriving in in the in the metaphor of the of the shrine that we created, and in fact, they have they have both thanked me repeatedly for the relief that they found, and now having something to tend, because you know, as you may know from your own life or from other people in your life, this kind of sort of grief never goes away. You know, it's it's in there, and uh, and all of the all of the societal things about you know your how you're seen or these absences in your life that there's no place to take them. But with these rituals, what I'm finding so far, they're really enriching people and 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 giving validity to this experience. You know that they, that they did go through and it was real and it was a wanted thing that for whatever reason you know nature did not did not permit. Yeah. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Patricia. Stay tuned for this break from our station. Hi, we're the Bollywood Boys. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com. And download the Dash Radio app for complete access to our station. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Welcome back to Life Force. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Life Force. I'm speaking here today with Patricia Danner. And we're talking about ritual and mourning surrounding the unborn, babies who are lost to miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion, and um, IVF babies as well. Um, Patricia, you earned a master's in mythological studies from uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute. Um, We've talked about uh, the Japanese protector of um, Jizo, and we've also talked about, um, you mentioned Artemis. Are there other myths out there about protectors or um, uh, women or goddesses that have lost their babies? What, what's out there that we can draw from? Um, well, the Japanese, from, from my research, seem to be the ones that have a Jizu sort of for every occasion. And the Jizu Mayaki is the one that is particular to um, protecting uh, our the protector of the unborn in the in the in, in limbo or afterlife, um, uh, but equivalent ones that aren't necessarily specific to babies, I suppose, in in, in Christian mythology or in the West would be Saint Francis or Saint Christopher or Saint Bridget that I mentioned earlier. I haven't come across um, an equivalent one so far in in Islam, 
Um, but that doesn't mean because I haven't found it that it's not there. Um, but these are the ones I'm most familiar with so far. And then the, at least four Asian cultures have a Jizu, a Jizu type of archetype also that is applied in different ways. But I think the Japanese are very particular in the, the, the Jizu Mayaki as the, as, the, as the protector of babies and the unborn. And I came across something very lovely actually the other day that... Um, Jizu is a very adaptable and very loving um, archetype and is also a protector of people whose parents have died. Wow. Okay. Yes. So Jizu's compassion and uh, and protectiveness uh, is is, is sort of boundless in a way. Jizu is neither male nor female, um, but, uh, you know, the desire for for tenderness and protection and and care uh, is broad and uh, in some cases um, children up to the age of two are protected too so it, it's mostly the unborn but Jesus is, is not a discriminator <laughs> and right because children used to die in infancy for many diseases right for many reasons absolutely yeah. but I, I thought the other day how beautiful this my own mother died a couple of months ago and uh you know, many this kind of grief visits every house too. And it's interesting in the coronavirus, you know, every so often it comes into my mind, oh, I hope she doesn't catch it before I realize, you know, that she's not here. But, but now I'm an orphan. And uh, when, I, when I discovered recently that uh, Jesus is also a protector for, you know, those whose parents have died, I feel even more comforted and I feel even more drawn to Jesus now. <laughs> it's, it's boundless, you know. And with this one here, you know, when I, have a, when I have a bad day, I picture myself right here. <laughs> wow. Patricia's holding up the ceramic Jizu and and uh, Jizu and and he and the one that's holding the baby in his palms and it's very very beautiful and and comforting. It's like the idea of you know resting your head in the lap of the Buddha. It's um you know an even more an even more tender um, interpretation of 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 that idea of infinite boundless love and compassion. I love that. That is so beautiful. So um, right now you're um, a currently a candidate of a PhD candidate um, in eco psychology. Um, I was looking at the uh, Veritas graduate website when I was um, preparing for this interview, and I saw this quote by Carl Jung: "Whatever is rejected in the self appears in the world as an event." It made me think of the coronavirus, actually. But um, I. Um, I just was wondering, I, th- I thought it was just an interesting example of maybe eco-psychology and if, if you could use that maybe to explain what eco-psychology is. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a relatively new science and it's, it's really transdisciplinary. So it, it combines mythology, psychology, ecology, economy, um, and it's essentially taking a psychological approach to ecology and an ecological approach to psychology. So the, there are five ecological principles um, which can be applied to absolutely everything. So there is waste. So there's no waste in nature, but there's lots of waste in humans. <laughs> um, energy. Everything is everything is made of energy, and energy is converted into one form or another. Uh, there is change, which is an, an inevitable thing. And um, in terms of something like these rituals. This is an, you know, change is, is an inevitable part of existence, um, but it doesn't mean that something is, is over. It doesn't mean that there's something that it's at an end. Diversity and connection are the other are the other principles. 
So applying these in looking at systems, looking at companies, looking at, at societies is a really interesting way of looking at, you know, what is wrong and what can be done, what might be done differently to actually, you know, live in a more of an eco-psychological eco sense. So eco-psychology really is an attempt to try to to try to heal our psychology by taking an ecological approach to what is going on within ourselves, looking at these principles, but also taking a psychological approach to how we behave in the world and in, and in the ecology in which, in which we all live. So it's, um, it's a, as I said, it's a relatively new, uh, a relatively new um, discipline, but I think it, it Transdisciplinary approaches, I think, to complex ideas are probably really the, make the most sense. There's no one, you know, one size fits all. And if you look at the complexity of our of our societies and our ecologies right now, you know, there there are no easy answers. There are multiple answers and approaches required, as we're finding right now in this kind of dark night of the soul that we're we're going through right now. That we're being this reckoning that we're being forced to do. So. In, um, when, when I went from the masters into into this program, it, the, again the, the whole thing about creating these rituals and bringing them to the West and bringing them out of Asia, um, just it just made more and more sense. Like you start, you asked me earlier, you know, was this always my plan? It didn't. I didn't know it was my plan, but now it seems like yes, that I, you know, this is exactly what I was meant to be doing, and. As, as it goes forward, it just seems to make so much more sense. And, you know, one thing I must say, every time I do these rituals or every time I talk about these practices, there's a phrase that somebody uses every single time. And that is, this is so needed. Like there's a cry for ritual. There is a, a longing and in a, a way to, to make sense and to heal the ruptures in our psyche caused by something like this that only a container like this can actually do and and the loving and the loving tenderness of of bodhisattva of the bodhisattva jizu is 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 boundless and so how does uh, so you're writing your dissertation on ritual and, and mourning and yes. how does ritual and mourning then connect to eco psychology well essentially um like i i mentioned when when i, when I make these shrines with people um their gardens, I really talk without using language like eco-psychology, I really talk about, you know, how we're all part of nature and there are things seen and unseen. And I use words like composting, uh, composting the pain there by, by literally making something that will, that will grow and that will be tended to externalizing it by, you know, creating these, these, uh, these, and then the, 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 the comfort of the ceremony itself and the, you know the formalization of this of this morning and this uh, and this actual ritual so essentially looking at everything everything in nature and in existence is subject to change so this is eco psychological principle number 1 waste that if this grief is properly acknowledged and given a vessel and a vehicle then it probably won't lead to addictive behavior or aggression or other things coming out in some other way. Uh, connection. If we talk about our grief and if we find a way to, you know, connect with others by, by actually giving space to a grief like this particular thing on the unborn, that, that's a comfort and that's a way of, uh, of, of communicating with others. Energy, the energy of coming together and making something that, you know, that, 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 that honors this. 
uh, diversity, um, well, I'm not sh- quite sure specifically about diversity um, in terms of this, but, you know, these, these eco-psychological principles are, are grief and, and, and a way of tending to grief. And I, I also feel like when you're using these phrases like composting your grief, which is so powerful, I mean, you're talking about this act of transformation, right? Precisely. So you're transforming something that is very dense and very heavy and very painful. And you're actually saying there's a way to move beyond this. There's a way to rise a, rise beyond it and to actually not only just rise out of your grief, but actually create something beautiful from it. And so that's what you're, you're doing with these shrines. Something yes, living, something alive, something beautiful, something breathing. Um, that's what you're doing. And, and transforming. Nature. Precisely. And, the, and transforming the hidden, invisible, unseen grief that up to now in the West, there is no place, there's no place to take it. Yeah. So you're also, I mean, you're doing so much. You're also writing a book uh, called um, Unborn. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm. I'm. I have a lot of a lot of things I would like to do um, to make Jizu a part of every community and every society and every home that wants to. Um, I, I'm. My book will be essentially as a, a sort of a, a self help book for people who are have have gone through this grief and who want maybe to to create a ritual of their own. I, it's a very friendly hand-holding book for people who, ha- who have this grief, no matter how old or how recent, that they can do this themselves, that they can access this wonderful bodhisattva, that they can, you know, they can invite um, this into their, into their lives and do it for themselves and um, find resources and find other, other groups and other ways that they can get support and help other people too who are dealing with this kind of grief. So uh, hopefully this will be coming out later next year and my dissertation will be due sometime um, next summer. So I will be fulfilling my academic requirements, but I, I really want to take this into the world. I, um, I want this to be something that's accessible to everybody. And I find that um, artists are very moved by it. I mean, it's the beauty, it's the simplicity of it. When people see it, they want to make them. So I hope that every park and every pub down the down the line will have this place for reflection because I mentioned earlier that you know a baby represents potential yes unborn is unborn can be about children but it's not all it's not only about that it's about regret too it's about the things the dreams that didn't come true the doors that didn't open the paths that weren't taken you know this is part of everybody's life separate to parenthood or our babies in particular you know this is a part of being human is to have disappointment and to have regret um so I hope that every, every place, that, that artists from towns and cities and whatever will, will create Jesus statues in different places and that it will be a kind of a reflection pond that people can go to and reflect, meditate, you know, like, like a meditation room in an airport. That there will be, this, this would be a recognized icon for, for reflection and for acknowledgement of this, of this hidden pain uh, inwardly. So I'm, I'm creating a foundation to, to try to get, you know, support, to try to, to get the word out there about this. And I do hope once I have my PhD that I will also be able to um, become certified with the Department of Education so that therapists can be trained 
to specifically heal people or to work with people who are dealing with this kind of grief and that it will enter the culture you know that i will do i midwife it for want of a better term and then let it let it be you know let let it go forward you know there is nothing but good that can come from you know having jesus as part of our culture part of all cultures not just you know where we're in the us but um you know there is nothing but but gentleness and comfort and even even holding this i find you know days where i'm not feeling so good there is something about the heft of it and the it fits in your hand so beautifully it's 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 just it's just perfection i think Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you, Patricia. We'll be back for our last segment after this message from our station. It's Punjab BMC right now. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue on Dash Radio. It's 2020. I'm about to blow up. Welcome back to Life Force. We're speaking with Patricia Danner, and we're talking about ritual and mourning surrounding the unborn. Um, Patricia, um, you mentioned um, about ha- seeing these um, gardens and these memorials in Japan. And have you seen anything like that in the U.S.? I've seen um, in the Japanese, um, in, the, in, the, in the Zen Center in Los Angeles, um, there, there is a small garden that has some Jesus statues. And I've seen in my research, although I haven't visited in Oregon, um, there's a Zen Center there that has a, that has a, a Jesus garden. And it appears that um, Jizu has been in this country for about 150 years, probably brought by by immigrant laborers coming here um, who would have who would have brought these and other kinds of, you know, uh, spiritual um, icons, you know, with them for for comfort. Um, so while it's not a mainstream thing, there is evidence that, you know, it's not entirely unknown, but probably more particularly in Asian communities, are those interested or involved in, in practices like Zen. And what would you say would be the difference um, in kind of the private ritual of creating a shrine in one's backyard versus having these public memorials? Well, I think, um, I think, the private one is very particular to one's own infant that did not make it um, and that is, is very, very intimate and private um, versus the, the public one, which, you know, I see, I see Jizu as, as comforting all kinds of ailments. You know, there's a, there's a, I think a universal pain reliever is, is a phrase I've come across uh, to describe, you know, the boundlessness of, of the compassion of, of Jesus. Um, so I think um, in the public space, uh, the idea of Jesus seeing one in a park or seeing one in the corner of a hospital or, you know, in a, in a hotel ground or, you know, or some, some sort of public space, I think would be a very comforting thing for people in general. Once, once it's become widely known that this very benevolent uh, figure is there and that sees you, you know, that your pain is, is not invisible and whatever pain that might be. Because, you know, the Jesus Mayaki, as we've, as we've spoken about, is particular to, to babies. But there's a lot of pain that many, many adults have, and particularly adults in the second stage of life. Regret is a huge part of many, many people's lives. So I think the unborn dreams, the unborn relationships, the path's not taken... Jesus, you know, can also be seen as a, as a great comfort for people um, in general. So I think the public place, you know, for all kinds of people and without necessarily having to go into a church or, or whatever else, but to see the little, uh, to see the icon, you know, and to feel my pain is not, 
is not un, unknown or is not just uh, is not just mine. I think um, could be a very very comforting thing in general. So I'm all for the public and the private. Wonderful. And, you know, we talked about how, you know, your life has unfolded in unexpected ways and uh, kind of there's been this thread. If we were to jump ahead 20 or 30 years from now, what would you want your legacy to be? Well, the current, I, I certainly hope that all of the things that I'm talking about will, will come into being hopefully in the next couple of years um, and that, you know, take on a life of its own in a sense that I will get it to a certain point. And I hope that my book will be will be successful and will be popular. Um, I'm, you know, I'm also writing other things. I'm, you know, working on uh, on, a, on a TV series. I'm, I'm working on on other lots of other ideas. But I I think the healing for myself and the and and the culture from the introduction of this um, is something that I, you know, I, I would hope would be. Uh, I mean, the legacy seems grandiose because I don't own Jesus. I just happen to be the person, you know, that ha- the, the come at the hour. But it's not, you know, it's not mine. But I do to create this great awareness of it, and then let people, you know, integrate it into their lives in, in whatever way they do. So twenty years. I don't know, but perhaps perhaps there will be something else. But I I am um, I'm very focused on this right now with the exigencies of a of a PhD and a and a publishing contract and and you know these kinds of things. But I I really hope that I set it on its way and that you know that, that it it enters into the into the culture. Wonderful. And one last question, because we were talking a lot about death and passing and grief. Um, I want to know what. What gives you life? Nature. Nature and being in my own garden. I, I'm, I'm endlessly thrilled when I plant a seed and I see it a few days later when I see something jutting up from the soil. Um, the cycles of nature and being in nature is, is an endless source of, 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 of comfort to me. Music, cats, pets, laughter, <laughs> uh, friendship, forgiveness. <laughs> Um, yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. To learn more about Patricia Danaher, go to ritualstomournetheunborn.com. That's rituals to T-O, mourn, M-O-U-R-N, the unborn. Ritualstomournetheunborn.com. Watch and share the replay of this episode of Life Force on Spotify. And to learn more about Life Force or this episode, connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Life Force. We end today's episode with a poem to Jizu, the Bodhisattva, from the book O May, Moon, and Other Poems by Alan W. Sims Lee, published in 1921. That's about 100 years ago. And it goes like this Dear Jizu, lover of the infant dead, most gentle Jizu, to whom mothers turn, for healing of their hearts, poor hearts that yearn after lost little ones, nor cease to grieve. Keep her, whom life has left uncomforted, within the gracious shadow of thy sleeve. This is Ritz. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to our station.